And now, coming to you live from Madison, Wisconsin, and Perth, Western Australia, it's the Cood Street Podcast on the road with Gary K. Wolf and Jonathan Strand. And I am high atop the something or other hotel um, in, in, in the square in Madison, Wisconsin. And there's there there was there was a great farmers market. Madison has one of the great farmers markets in North America, as far as I'm concerned. Every Saturday morning, there's a marathon going on out there, and I don't know why it's going on out there at midnight, but it is. And um, and Wiscon is going on right down the street at the Madison Concourse Hotel, where they have wonderful parties and things. And I'm I'm here doing this because. Because we're loyal podcasters, and we don't want to disappoint our listeners, do we? Well, we don't. I was just thinking, you're in the wrong hotel, aren't you? I am. But, you know, one of the things that I sometimes do at conventions is I sometimes go to the wrong hotel. Okay. Uh, but you, you, you mean on purpose, right? You know, there's something to be said for peace and quiet. Yeah. Uh, and there's something to be said for going into a hotel lobby where not too many people are going to come up to you and want to start conversations, some of which are interesting. Okay. But not all. See, what so, I remember very fondly, and see, I've never been to Wiscon, but I've uh, been to the hotel that Wiscon is held in because in 2005, World Fantasy went there. And it was one of the great World Fantasies that I've ever been to. Not the least yes. because we were up on the uh, Regency the floor, or the Governor's floor, whatever the they call it. Lounge, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Which has this wonderful New Glarus spotted cow beer, which uh, is, is hard to find anywhere else. Yeah. And you can drink all you want to if you're on that floor. It's terrific. Yeah. Well, that makes it sound like this is this. Yes, it's the you know Pooch, the Cooch Street podcast. You know, brought to you not by Alcoholics Anonymous. But anyway, uh, what happened was though, uh, we uh, I was sharing a suite with with uh, Garth Nix and somebody else, mm-hmm. and it was like about a hundred feet down the hall, if that, from the actual bar. Yeah. So like you're up there having yeah 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 talk talk talk, and it's like walk. 100 feet down the corridor into your room. And even then, because, of course, as you know, even after the bar closes, well, things are only starting, yeah. uh, people are coming in and out because we had a few drinks and we could talk. That's where I met Ellen Kushner for the first time. Really? The first time I met Ellen Kushner ever in my life, she was wearing a snowy white bathrobe and drying her hair as she walked into our room. Aha. Uh-huh. Uh, you know... Her- convention memories i guess (laughs) and that's also where i met hal duncan the first time but i don't know given how heavily he was drinking that he would remember me well right and one of this well yeah he was and uh i i spent a lot of time with hal duncan because one of the curious things about a madison uh concourse hotel which in many ways is a great convention hotel Mm -hmm. of course like all hotels it's no smoking but there's a little corner out in the front where if you want to talk to Shara November, if you want to talk to Hal Duncan, if you want to talk, I'll, I'll be out there having a pipe. And it's a little seminar by itself. And Hal was out. I've, I've never seen anybody smoke more than Hal did that weekend. Not that I think about it. <laughs> but the, but the, you can always meet a certain group of people at a certain place. Yes. Now, okay, to be on, I, I, absolute honesty, I, I do love the uh, uh, Governor's Club. And one of the things, you go in there in the morning, you get free breakfast. You go in there in the afternoon, you have free beer and wine. And... At the end of every Wiscon, as I understand it, I've never actually tried this. By the sun, by Sunday morning, at the, uh, on the next to the last day, um, that room is booked up. That entire floor is booked up for the following year's convention. Yeah. Uh, and I never get my act together enough to make plans a year in advance. No, no, no. Uh, in fact, look, I am bad at planning generally in terms of 
conventionally stuff. I mean, I, I have to be careful when I say I'm bad at planning because part of my job actually involves planning. But yeah. for this sort of stuff, no, I tend to, I don't know, I seem to like to let it to evolve. And actually, I was, I was blogging this morning, which I don't do very often really anymore. And one of the things I was blogging about was my seeming reluctance to actually buy plane tickets to go to Toronto. Because I've known the route that I want to take for two or three months. Mm-hmm. And I've got the okay to get the tickets. And for some reason, I just can't press the let's buy that button. And I don't know what it is. I think it's my body rebelling against the idea of 20 hours on planes or 25 hours on planes. Um, I did, well, I, I, was, I was talking to um, um, some people tonight about, about your situation. And, and we all came to the same conclusion that if airlines would do this, uh, I, I, was talk, I was talking to our friend Amelia Beamer, who's there mm-hmm. in, in with you now, and and she was figuring out, you know, getting there from London. She was talking to her parents who were in Michigan and figuring out that mm. that's literally the opposite side of the globe. You, you know, oh, sure. Knife. And yep. and she said basically from Perth you ought to be able to fly anywhere over the South Pole, over the North Pole, over Europe, over Asia. It's all going to be the same distance to get back to America. <laughs> well, well, yes, but and the only yes, but is of course you need something in between to land on. Well, I there's mean, true. Uh, I mean, yeah. I do know that you can fly to New York well, from Perth to New York with only one stop if you are willing to fly now business class. I think because Singapore mm-hmm. Airlines offer a Perth Singapore Singapore New York uh, flight where the Singapore New York is nonstop over the North Pole. Uh huh. Which doesn't that sound good? And then you realize, well, hang on, until you realize it's nineteen hour of flight. Well, yeah. <laughs> I'd be, I'm, I'm, I'm still paranoid enough to think. I hope things go really well while we're over the North Pole. <laughs> Probably in, in in all reality, it's much less of a thing. But yes, I, I I do share your your feelings. So I mean, I do have to commit because of course you and I were quietly before we started recording this, the hundred and third episode of the podcast. Mm-hmm. Um, Talking about plans for Toronto, I don't think we'll go into them too much here, but we are talking about plans uh, and the possibility of the first ever live Creed Street podcast. We will fill people on, on in on details as we get them, but yeah, we want to, to have a presence there. A lot of our regular friends, a lot of our regular guests are going to be there. It's going to be in some ways a Cood Street reunion. Well, yes, there's lots of things. I mean, if we were actually organized and thoughtful and planned and everything else... You know, I mean, I, I will have a book to talk about. I think you've got some other stuff. Of course, you've got your the Toastmaster for the event. Mm-hmm. Um, other friends of the podcast, uh, Elisa Krasenstein will have books out for that podcast, for the uh, the convention. She's got a couple of big uh, books coming out in her 12th Planet Press, 12th Planet series. Mm-hmm. Uh, so do many, many others of our, uh, of our friends and colleagues. So there's lots we could do. Um, that said, of course, Gary, we're about to come to a fundamental, you know, a, a, a juncture point in episode 103 of the Code Street Podcast, Gary. One we need to ponder and share with our listeners. One that will probably surprise and dismay them. And that, that juncture point is that actually, five minutes ago, we weren't sure we were going to record this. And we have no idea what we're going to talk about. You just introduced a topic. And, and we never have any idea what we're going to talk about. And, and you know, the, here, here's our theory. Here's the secret of the Code Street Podcast for people who don't know it. Uh, we hope that we'll think of something. I, I think we they know start, that now. But there's, but there's always the possibility we can get 10 minutes into this and think it's not working. We don't have anything to talk about. But here's the problem with that theory. Mm. We never started this as a podcast, did we? we started <laughs> well, that's true. We know that. We know that. And we, when we were just having conversations with each other, we didn't think, oh, 
this conversation isn't we, we better get an hour out of this conversation it just went on for an hour longer gary far longer far longer <laughs> than history, I think. okay well okay here's here's something I was tweeting back and forth and emailing back and forth with uh, Elisa Krasenstein of 12th Planet Press yesterday uh, about a number of things. But one of the things we were talking about was the popular vote element of the World Fantasy Awards. Mm -hmm. Because as you know, Gary, in three or four days' time, the reader's portion of the nomination process closes. May 31st. May 31st. So if anybody wish, who is a member of the convention or is otherwise eligible, I'm not sure of the eligibility criteria, uh -huh. um, you have to get your nominations in. And one of the topics going around the shop quite reasonably is the Lifetime Achievement Award. Uh -huh. And I, it occurs to me since we've spoken about the, the, the SFWA Grandmaster just last week and how we have to arrange that CJ Cherry podcast we were talking about, mm -hmm. amongst others, there is the issue of World Fantasy Lifetime Achievement and who would be eligible, what the nature of it is. And it's, it, it's actually probably more relevant for you and I to talk about this now than was the other podcast, the other topic, because we have both been involved in the process of selecting, uh, Lifetime Achievement mm -hmm. recipients. And there's been there's been some uh, interesting you know issues over that which we probably shouldn't talk about. But well, what's confidential stays confidential. How much confidentiality are we as former judges uh, restricted to in terms of how that works with a final selection? I mean, for example, we know in all the categories in the novel, novella, and so forth and so forth mm -hmm. that I think the popular vote puts two items on each category. Yeah. So. Popular vote is very important for those categories. You can, you know, no matter what the judges think, no matter how elitist or disconnected or psychotic or alcoholic you think the judges to be, if you you can work to get things on that ballot. Yeah. It doesn't quite work. You're breaking up. The last achievement award. Yeah. Well, see, of course, you you and I were. I don't believe. Um, are you still there? Yeah, I, I, I'm hearing you now. I actually lost you for a minute there. Got a little bit of garble, which I'll probably at some point clean up or not. Okay, okay. I, I, I couldn't see Yeah, well, let's just okay. say that it's just to Am clarify that, oh. yes, the years that we judged the awards, okay. um, the recipients of the um, Lifetime Achievement Award, you laid down a triple thread, Gary. I mean, talk about self-indulgent. Brian Lumley, Terry Pratchett, and Peter Straub? Well. Hello? Hello? Well, let's, let's say the three people ended up receiving the award. Mm-hmm. And that the... Um, hello, you can't hear me again? You're, you're, you're just getting garbled and dropping in and out. Um uh, but we'll keep. Well, let's push ahead for another four or five minutes, and then if we if we get in too much trouble, we'll think. And the year. I mean, just, can you just, hear me just, now? Yes, I can hear you now. Just before I sit here and say, Gary, they're all old white men, right? I have to say, the year that I was a judge, we picked Philip Jose Farmer and Frank Frazetta. So more old white. Uh -huh. men. So yeah. Mm. Well, we've had. I mean, past judges have had. We were talking earlier about Leo and Leo and Diane Dillon. Mm, yeah. Uh, who, won the award and actually it's nice you know, you've got old well they weren't even that old but they were they were old but you know you have an african-american man and a woman and it's like uh not only are they diverse between the two of them but they're terrific candidates 
so one of the things yeah. that I think is interesting about the Lifetime Achievement Award, and I know that the administrators encourage this, is to try to think beyond the box of writers, to try to think of illustrators, sure. editors, uh, publishers, people who have been, Betty Valentine, for example. Um, so that's one thing. The other thing is how much the popular vote influences that is unclear to me. Yeah. I, I, well, I, I don't know. I mean, it, I must say that in the year that I was a judge, the only thing I would say about the process, which was mostly very amicable and straightforward, uh, though there are confidential factors about it, as you say, was that I think we, we did look at it, on it as something that was up to us because unlike in the other, I mean, the, the, the lifetime achievement category is unlike the other categories when it comes to uh, the popular vote. And it's worth you know, people understanding that. In other categories, what happens is that the popular vote, vote is held, and the first two items to go onto the ballot come from the popular vote. Yeah. Now, the judges still decide what wins. And the judges in decide what the other three or four candidates are yeah. for the category. They do. Now, when it comes to lifetime achievement, uh, the recommendations from or the, the votes from the from the popular vote simply form a recommendation to the judges mm -hmm. or at least that was how it was when i was judging was. i don't know i, I you, assume it's still that way uh we as judges were given the results of the vote and it was basically advisory as i as i recall it yeah so i, I don't believe that when you when you nominate uh, someone for lifetime achievement, what you're actually doing is recommending them to the jury who will consider them within their ju judging process. And I mean, I, I have to say there's a whole bunch of people I was thinking about. I mean, uh, I must say these days it's, it's, it's a, a no normal thing, I think, to look at a list and sort of go, well, there is still a gender imbalance in these things and what women are being overlooked. Uh, mm -hmm. I, I've come to sort of feel Kate Wilhelm is being dreadfully overlooked generally. And I'm not really entirely sure why. I don't know whether it's because she's been out of the field for 15 years or more writing mysteries exclusively pretty much, though she's written genre short fiction, or whether she's also partly overshadowed because she was part of a high-profile couple in the field, and so maybe that distorts things. I really don't know. But for some reason, she's not being paid attention to. And then there's these great people. I mean, I was surprised that, I mean, Mary Stewart, who, who surely is deserving of a Lifetime Achievement uh, Award. There, there are two things that I think... This is, this, is a good, this is a good issue to bring up in terms of people who are voting. Uh, don't assume that some people are dead. One of the reasons... I mean, the year I was on the uh, committee, somebody else on the committee, actually, uh, one of us... Maybe it was me, but it was maybe somebody else, discovered that Mary Stewart was alive. And people read... People my age read Mary Stewart when they were kids. So everybody sure. said, Mary she must have died 20 years. She's No, she, as of the last time I checked, was still alive. She's like in her upper 90s, I believe. Yeah. Uh, Susan Cooper was one. Uh, Who's also still alive, yes. Yes. And um, would, be a, would be a brilliant recipient of the award, I think. Uh, I, for some reason, I'd got the, uh, this links in. I mean, I thought about Robin McKinley, who would also be a worthy recipient. Uh, and then I also, well, for some reason, I thought Peter Dickinson had actually passed away already. Uh, and I say already because he is 85 or 86, I think, and has been on well, but actually is still still alive. Still there, yeah. Yeah, and so Peter would be a great recipient as well, as would Joyce Carol Oates, mm -hmm. as would Kit Reed, as would just, oh, uh, Sherry S. Tepper, who's in her 80s. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, and, and this is this is actually another key thing. It's like, yes, there's the the judges decide. Yes, the pub the public get to make recommendations. There aren't a lot of clearly written criteria. Uh, I mean, I remember asking what the age criteria was, if there was one, and I was told it was simply a rule of thumb. But the rule of thumb was something like about sixty five uh, as is, an age. Yeah, sixty seven or sixty eight is what yeah. I think. And um, so you're talking about someone who's like not only well progressed to a long career, but is also perhaps elderly, and maybe you want to make sure because uh, the the World Fantasy Award Lifetime Achievement shares with the the SFWA Grant Master Award the fact the the requirement that the recipient still be alive, mm-hmm. or and this is different from the SFWA Award, have died in the year of the awards presented. So, for example, as we were saying off, off list before, um, Murray Sendak would be would be eligible uh, for the award, um, as would anybody else who, who dies in 2012. Um, so, yeah, it, it's and I'm, I, 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 that's where the, where the two person limitation becomes frustrating. I mean, if I were on a jury now, I'd be going, well, can I put Mary Stewart and Susan Cooper and Robin McKinley and Peter Dickinson all into the Hall of Fame with Marie Sendak right now, because I think they yeah. all should be there. Uh, and two people a year isn't going to be enough. I mean, that's what I feel exactly. about about the, the the SFWA thing as well. I don't really think. But how can two people be enough? There are more people than that, and they're worthy. And every every if they're all going to be inducted before need to be inducted before they pass away, and may that be many years into the future for all of them. It just isn't going to work out. No, I'm, I'm sure we could both make lists or look up lists very quickly of people that we missed or people that came too late. And one of the things I distinctly remember feeling this as a judge is you're put in a completely uh, draconian choice. Uh, and to some extent, you have to think, you know, if we don't put if we don't elect this person this year, will we still have a chance next year? And one of the reasons that that rule exists in World Fantasy Awards, that if somebody is overlooked in one year, they can be inducted in the year they die is partly to avoid that. It's partly partly to prevent uh, the committee, at least, and maybe the voting membership of the World Fantasy from saying, oh, my God, we, we didn't do it, and now it's too late. Uh, yeah, but, but then you've also got that thing where you suddenly go, it's, it's like, I don't know if you've ever, ever seen this or heard it reported, whenever a famous musician dies, their record sales go up and everybody starts buy, downloading them off iTunes, all that kind of thing. And you don't want to sort of have somebody who you hadn't thought of before Suddenly being thrown, being ra- uh, raised simply because they happen to have passed away. Right. That's that's the other issue. Um, and I'm not sure that that could be an issue this year. I don't know with a popular vote looking at Maria Sindak and thinking how influential he was with so many people. Absolutely. Um, the other issue that comes up with with any kind of life achievement award, which is, is it, it, it it's a is it a career recognition for an extended career uh, or is it a recognition for a few seminal works that everybody seems to have read. This question comes up, for example. You mentioned Kate Willem, who's not certainly not written a lot of fantasy recently, mm-hmm. largely known as a science fiction writer, and there's a bias toward fantasy in the award. Or years ago, there was a bias toward horror in the award. Sure, sure. Uh, and, and then there's a question of somebody like a Lloyd Alexander or a Susan Cooper, who have written, or, or for that matter, a Madeleine Langle. It's too late for her, but people who have written iconic series that are hugely influential. Yes. You know, somebody who's written The Dark is Rising um, or The Chronicles of Perdane, but maybe not a lot since then, or maybe had a sh- relatively short career with a few masterworks in it, balanced against somebody who has consistently written over a 40 or 50 year period 
quality works. Yeah. Um, and and and, and balanced against somebody like let's say Sherry Tepper, who's as you say in her 80s, but began publishing at a fairly advanced age. She did, uh, but, but yeah. wrote a lot of work, a lot of excellent, wonderful work, particularly the the, the stuff up through to, oh, I, mean, I mean, in terms of fantasy terms, before she turned more to science fiction. Uh, so up through the, say, uh, Raising the Stones. I think everything after that is pretty much science fiction, but there's yeah. a good deal of fantasy before that. I think she would be a great, actually, a great recipient um, of the award. Uh, what about people who have one overwhelming achievement and that's where the entire reputation uh, rests on. And I'm thinking, I'm thinking, what about someone in 15 years' time, like Susanna Clark? She may never put out another novel. She's mm. certainly not prolific. Uh, do you need to prol be prolific to have written an important book and to have had a broad influence? I mean, surely Bill Gibson would get his Grand Master Award when the time comes, just based on your romancer alone, never mind anything else. Yeah. I think that's I, th I think that's to some extent true, and I think it's it's been true in science fiction for a while. I mean, um, here's a, here's a good example, and, and, and the SFWA came up with an award that I that I I don't like, frankly, the Emeritus Award. Yeah, it was meant to cover cases a little bit like that. Um, I mean, essentially, um, Daniel Keyes, for example, got the Author Emeritus Award, yeah. even though he was he was in no sense emeritus. He just hadn't been writing science fiction for a long time. Yeah. Um, and to some extent, I don't think the SFWA was going to give him a Grand Master Award, essentially for one story, yeah. uh, which was turned into a, you know, a, a terrific novel, enormously influential, one of the most perfect stories ever in the genre. Everybody has read it. Everybody, in some sense, has been influenced by it. Uh, and the rest of his work has been in psychological fiction, some mystery fiction, some nonfiction. But basically, yeah, he's been away from the science fiction field since 1959. Yeah, yeah. So on, on, on the other hand, you know, it's like, what's more influential uh, in, in the history of the field? Sort of, I, I mean, part of me goes, you know what? Flowers for Algernon all by itself just about deserves a Grand Master Award. I was thinking that there's there, there's some things that are just so significant in the field. And yeah. uh, I mean, there are, I don't know, uh, there are probably several other people we could think about. Oh, sure. Single master works like that. And the other question is, what about the author who um, consistently produces uh, good fiction and some of them are, let's say somebody whose major work has been in science fiction, which is generally not the purview of world fantasy, although it's included. I'm thinking of somebody like Susan McKee Charnas, who I was having delightful conversation with last night. Yep. She's written significant fantasy and significant horror, uh, but her, you know, her, her large part of her reputation was in the... Uh, Feminist science fiction tetralogy, mm -hmm. which ended with The Conqueror's Child. Yeah. Uh, very influential work, but people don't see that as fantasy. No. Uh, and yet, the Vampire Chronicles, before people were, before vampires were, you know, candy for kids, um, <laughs> she was writing significantly brutal and very realistic and very psychologically acute vampire stories. Yep. So, uh, what happens to somebody like that? Um, yeah. She may have written too much science fiction. Uh, and not enough things that look like fantasy. True. I will, I will say one thing I find surreal, and it's to, to the, uh, sort of a step to the left of this discussion, I guess, is I, I mean, okay, I started reading the field when I was young. I've talked about that before. I've also talked about how I really clicked with the field and came into a step with it in the early, early to mid-80s, began reading Locust and became aware of the field as a whole. 
And there was a whole generation of writers who came into the field or to prominence in the field in the early to mid 80s. Uh, and by that group I'm thinking of, obviously, you know, Robinson, Gibson, uh, Cadigan, da -da -da, oh, a bunch of people. And what's really funny is we're just about at the point where they're Grandmaster um, eligible. I mean, Ellen Datler. I mean, Ellen Datler, surely if anybody on Earth is going to get the Lifetime Achievement Award at the World Fantasy Awards, and deserves to, yeah, it's got to be Ellen Datler. Oh, I you think know. that there are people like Ellen, and Ellen's probably at the top of the list, where it's – well, I mean, I've heard this argument made, and I won't mention names, but it happened among my jury, and I found out from talking to earlier juries, that there's always a discussion that happens about so-and-so, and somebody says, well, so-and-so is going to get one, so we don't have to be the ones to do it. <laughs> and, and you get five or six years of juries, and I know a specific – two or three specific cases like this, like I say, which I won't mention by name, where each jury says, well, gonna, next year's jury will do it. And then the next year's jury says, well, next year's – nobody wants to do the obvious choices, I guess, to some extent. People want surprises. But yeah, you're right. I think everybody involved with world fantasy knows that Ellen is going to get one. Well, um, well hang on. Let, let's just be clarifying. Really significantly deserves to get one. Deserves to get one, absolutely. And can uh, I just say, as a because I'm sentimental, I would love to see Ellen and Terry receive it in the same year, because I know they do present it to two people, and right. I think that would be perfect. That'd be an excellent year. Yeah. Because because uh, uh, Terry, for s similar but in, and in some ways different re um, reasons, is equally a deserving recipient. Uh, they're both, you know. Uh, tit you know, titans of of the particularly the fantasy and horror fields for the last thirty years or so. So yeah, must be re receive it sometime soon. But, oh, yeah. but but Ellen herself popped up on Twitter when we were discussing it a couple of you know, like last week, and she's going too young. Well, this is the other thing. This is exactly the thing that comes up with the uh, with the SFWA's uh, emeritus award, and sometimes with grandmaster awards. Um, is there a sense at which you get a lifetime achievement award, and you're thinking? I'm not that old. I'm, I'm, it's not over yet. I'm still. You're, you're you're like the guy in Monty Python and the Holy Grail. Say I'm getting better. Uh, well, actually, well, actually, actually, in fairness, Hop, many of them are. They are. I mean, I think Ellen's. Uh, I like ed I like I like Ellen's editing in the last ten to fifteen years more than I did uh, some of the earlier horror anthologies. Mm -hmm. I think her tastes have gotten more sophisticated. She knows. She knows fantasy and horror and science fiction as well as anybody, but she knows horror better than any editor possibly ever in that field. Yeah. Um, and that kind of sophistication, and by horror I mean the whole range of you know literary to surreal to, 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 to splatterpunk. She kind of went through a period of liking splatterpunk when she was doing the year's best horror. Oh. And, and, and yet there are, there's an argument to be made for people uh, like Ellen, that we don't know how much more she can do. All we can say is that we expect you to do more, but on the basis of what you've done already, you deserve this. Oh, I had the same yeah. conversation with Peter Straub. Now, Peter's older than Ellen is, and he really, really appreciated the award. And, hmm. and, and Gene Wolfe really, really appreciated the award when they got it. Uh, and they didn't make that – they didn't assume that that meant their career was over. They oh, this, no. Uh, and Gene has written some of his best work since he got the world fantasy. Absolutely. Let, let me tell you, if if you accept that, um, what sixty five is the is, is the cutoff year or something it's, like that. A, a parenthesis, just in terms of world fantasy history, Stephen King got one when he was way younger than that. 
Yeah, I, I've got two, two, two male nominees. I've mean, got a lot of women, you know, women on my mind, but I, I'm curious about the ethnocentricity of the award. And so here's two, and I want me to, you, you to tell me whether you think their, their, their name should be firmly in this discussion, because I think they may fall outside it. The first is Christopher Priest, mm. who's 69. Yeah. And the second is, is M. John Harrison, who's 66. Huh. Well, my question about Harrison is that there's a lot of fantasy fiction in that, but he's, he's very widely perceived as a science fiction writer and more lately as a new weird writer. Yeah. But in terms of, the, in, in terms of just the sheer literary quality of his achievement, not to mention his influence on, on basically every writer in England for the last you know, 20 or 30 years, uh, I would say yes. Yes. Uh, the other thing which my committee did as a kind of gesture, because it's uh, it has to do with let's think in terms of life achievement a little bit outside the um, um, realm of, of, of writers, is we nominated we didn't nominate him for the life achievement award, but we we nominated a, I think a special award professional for for mm. Miyazaki. Yeah. And if you look at Miyazaki's life work, uh, I would argue you could make an argument that his films have been oh sure. Uh, Enormously influential among writers and among the whole fantasy field, and among designers and among manga and anime and everything. Oh. Yeah, oh. I, I have a, a crazy idea, which will go pro no further than the bounds of this podcast and all of our dear listeners. But it's a call out. And tell me what you think. This is a suggestion. A shout out to the World Fantasy Board, who are the p people who, in good faith, and who are volunteers who put lots of work into this stuff. A, a, a suggestion that they have at least one year in the next two or three or four where they allow allow a large influx into the Lifetime Achievement slash Hall of Fame just to be sure, because with population and everything else, we're going to miss these people who are in their late 70s, 80s, yeah. whatever else, and let one year nominate 10 or something. Not to take any special focus off the individuals, but these people mm. deserve to be... Um, in in the hall of you know the, this fantasy hall of fame such as it is I mean I know, I know that's not really what it is it's a lifetime achievement pre, uh, award but nonetheless they deserve fundamentally to be in there and I'd be saddened if they weren't I mean the one that always haunts me is Paul Anderson right because mm -hmm. you know Paul Anderson obviously is not did not receive the lifetime achievement award for the world uh, fan from, uh, world no. fantasy for and the, the year fantasy. that he died was the year that I was a judge. So mm -hmm. we did discuss presenting it to to Paul posthumously, um, and had had a, had long long conversations about it before we you know made the decisions we did about. Um, in fact, initially I think that the one thing I, I can say about uh, the decisions in our year were was that um, we we thought we could only nominate one person. And so we, we the, our first of our two choices was Philip Jose Farmer, who we knew was elderly and infirm. Mm -hmm. And so we made this decision about nominating someone who was elderly and infirm over somebody who had already passed away, I guess. Though both of them were overwhelmingly suitable mm -hmm. nominees. Um, and honestly, I wouldn't mind, though I know these things are always looked at oddly, a, a, a posthumous intake for a few people. But, but therein you never stop, I guess. And maybe that's where uh, there might be a suitable proposition as well to somebody to link these Lifetime Achievement Awards to a Fantasy Hall of Fame, which does not, to my knowledge, exist. Well, one of the things that's interesting about the Science Fiction Hall of Fame 
uh, what there is left of it in Seattle, which is apparently not having a ceremony this year, uh, is that they did have an interesting strategy in terms of inducting people into the Hall of Fame. And there was it was a media influence strategy. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, there were there were a lot of things wrong with it. But the idea of having two living and two deceased inductees every year seemed to be a way of doing a little bit of both. Yeah. Um, giving about and, and the early years, I mean, the, the, one of the problems if you start uh, opening up life achievement awards essentially to dead people is that, well, OK, you're going to be giving awards to Arthur Mackin and H.P. Lovecraft and so forth and so on. <laughs> indefinitely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And here's my argument to that. Um, when you have a canon that's established, you have obviously classic. You, you don't need – H.G. Wells doesn't need to be in the Science Fiction Hall of Fame because there wouldn't be a Science Fiction Hall of Fame with H.G. Wells. <laughs> so there, the, people who are established parts of the canon are effectively in a Hall of Fame, which is far more important than any Hall of Fame we can construct for them. True. I, I would accept uh, that. And, and, and so, so if you start looking at people who uh, are – you know. Uh, dead more than 10 years, let's say. Uh, to some extent, history has already decided whether those people are in a Hall of Fame. Putting yeah. somebody in a Hall of Fame does not necessarily mean that they are going to ever be significantly influential again. One of the, I've mean, I, I met him once, but one of the one of the members who is highly respected uh, and was a classic, uh, you know, longtime writer for pulps and other things was Hubie Cave. Mm-hmm. Uh, Hubie Cave was enormously influential. Hubie Cave is, is now, you know, got a Life Achievement Award. Uh, I don't think that's going to mean anybody reads Hubie Cave more than would have read him if he hadn't gotten this award. Uh, yeah. And I think it's true for a lot of the other people who are there. So to some extent, the real Hall of Fame is who's still being read 40 or 50 years from now. Uh, well, we, well, that's true. I mean, and there, there's some people you could point to, and that's it's it maybe a different conversation. But certainly, yes. I don't know how – well, let me put it this way, though. There is some there's some value in the community of writers and readers acknowledging to creators during their lifetimes that they've been appreciated. This is this is an argument in yeah absolutely it, during the lifetime realizing that you've gotten the award. I don't know of anybody who's been unhappy to give it uh, to, to get it. I mean I don't know. Uh, you're talking about the rare times it's been given to somebody who's uh, not uh, English or European, and I don't know, very many Australians gotten it? Uh, uh, the Lifetime Achievement Award, the, the, the fantasy one? No, no, yeah. not at all, no. Nobody from Australia. I would have a quick look while, while you know, just, just quietly, and I'll, I'll have run my eye down, but okay. I think they're all over, all, over, almost overwhelmingly um, from the United States or Britain. I think maybe one of the few variants would be Angelica Garodisher, but um, I think yeah. everybody else is Tal- from Calvino. Calvino hmm? was there. Yes. Tal- Calvino was there. Yeah. Uh, and you're right. I'm thinking everybody else on the list is uh, English or American. Mm-hmm. Okay, this goes back to one of my pet peeves about both the World Fantasy Convention and the World Science Fiction Convention. Whose world? <laughs> what do you mean, world? Uh, uh, oh, white Anglo-Saxon male world. I mean... Uh, there Which are, it can't keep being, but I think there's an element of that historically. Kobo Abe got a, as I'm not mistaken, got a Nobel Prize, and he'd written quite a bit of science fiction and some bizarrely fantastic work. Mm-hmm. It was never recognized by our community at all, as far as nope. I know. Um, uh, Gunter Grass has written a lot of fantasy in his lifetime. Uh, I don't see his name come up even on the possible candidates for a life achievement. No, award. no. 
And I think if you're look, I, I, I don't. Obviously, there are no nominee lists published. It's not the kind of thing you have a nominee list for. But mm. my guess is, if you went through, it's not just almost exclusively from the UK and the US. It's probably eighty percent from the US. Well, probably is too. I just found another name, Borges. George mm. Luis Borges received a life achievement award also. Yeah. Uh, and that 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 was a really smart thing to do. Uh, but. Uh, Carlos Fuentes is now dead. A lot of fantastic work in his... Uh, would you give it to Marquez? I would have given it to Garcia Marquez. Yes. But, but on the not. other hand, it's like, okay, this is that other question that some people say, and they say particularly about the Hugo Awards and the media element of the Hugo Awards, does Marquez care about the, uh, the Life Achievement Award? Do they need to care? Is that relevant? Well, no, they don't need to care. Uh, I mean, I have mixed feelings about that. The media thing, yes, there is something... There is something almost touching about giving Nebula and Hugo awards to Steven Spielberg, yeah. uh, because he's, he's 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 not watching the webcast, you know. He's not. On the <laughs> you assume, Gary. You assume. You don't know that. Uh, I kind of, I sort of agree with you, but yeah. Um, but you know, Spielberg. To be honest, Spielberg. You could make an argument for Spielberg getting a life achievement award for fantasy. Yeah. Yeah. Whether you like the films or not. He did a lot to reintroduce large-scale fantasy into, or, or, uh, you know, or, or Peter Jackson, for that matter. Mm. So, so, but I know there's a sense, and I know this is what the philosophy of World Fantasy Awards has been, to not get into an, an overwhelming vote toward every actor and director and screenwriter. And, and, mm. and, and pretty soon the awards begin to look like, oh, let's say the short dramatic form Hugo nominations, which yep. is basically, you know, this this year's Doctor Who, this year's Doctor Who list. Um, so yeah, I can understand wanting to stay away from really just kind of overwhelmingly popular uh, public figures. Yeah. Uh, but I think you have to balance that with considering what do you mean by fantasy in the broad purview that this organization now tries to recognize. And yeah, there are people um, who are film directors. There are people who are animators. There are people who are I don't think there are any cartoonists who have won it. Um, there are lots and lots of, uh, sh should Dave McKean be on this list? Yes. Look, let me take another tack since we're steering around this one topic and awards seem to constantly provide us with a topic of conversation, possibly lamentably. Mm. What about Ray Feist? What about Terry Brooks? What about Stephen R. Donaldson? Um, what about the most popular ambassadors for our field the latest issue of um the new york review of science fiction has a couple of deliberately provocative and 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 clearly argued essays one by stephen erickson about this exact issue about the fact that the, the other one is by ap carnavan uh looking at the uh, cambridge companion to modern fantasy both of them making the same argument that as a community or field or literary group or something the central uh, sort of commercial engine of fantasy, which is high fantasy, what they used to call high fantasy, or they call epic fantasy, fantasy that comes and tends to come in series or trilogies, is is overlooked. It's almost systematically overlooked, and uh, the suspicion in both of these essays is that it's deliberately overlooked. Oh, I'm sure it's deliberately. In fact, no, I would outright say it's over, deliberately overlooked for for a variety of reasons. But what I'd ask you is this. Don't the equivalent of those people in the science fiction field, splitting science fiction from fantasy for a moment, don't they get recognized? 
don't most of the most popular science fiction writers, I and mean, particularly if you allow there's a slip in, in time between the two fields, there's the 40s and 50s science fiction, there's a 70s, 80s fantasy thing that happens. Now, if you take that as, as, as accurate, most of the 40s, 50s writers in science fiction would be slash were considered for uh, grandmaster status. Uh, and yet there's this, this prejudice, frankly, against popular writers, almost as though, well, Terry Brooks is doing back, you know, doing backstroke down a, a Wall Street 100 feet deep in cash. I'm not going to give him the Life Achievement Award. Um, and I'm not sure that that's, that's a good decision. I mean, sometimes I look at, look at them myself and I think I don't get the appeal of some of those books. Um, maybe that some of them are not the best written books line by line as, as, or something. But my goodness, they were sweepingly influential. You know, it's, it's absurd to say Terry Brooks is not one of the most influential fantasy writers of the last 40 years. Absurd. Mm -hmm. Uh, I, think I, I don't think the bias is a financial bias. I think it's something else. And I think, I mean, for example, uh, Terry Pratchett has a, a life achievement award from World Fantasy, and he certainly is not hurting. Um, and but, but I think it's, and, and I don't think the parallel with science fiction is exactly correct because okay. I'm not sure there's anything quite like this in science fiction. In the last 20 years, at least, there's been nothing in science fiction that compares to the success of. Uh, of, of a Terry Brooks or uh, or Robert Jordan and, and now Brandon Sanderson. Yeah. And, the, and bestsellers, when science fiction had its period in the 70s of hitting the bestseller list, if you don't count Michael Crichton and, and the sort of yeah. pseudo science fiction writers, those tended to be people like Asimov writing late, uh, you know, late series redactions, mm -hmm. Clark writing his uh, increasing series of collaborations and so forth. In other words, uh, Heinlein at, at the very end of his career could get on the bestseller list. These are people whose achievements, essentially, uh, as historical figures, happened far before they ever hit the bestseller list. Yeah. Uh, and now you have a number of people. When you start talking about, uh, you know, uh, people like, uh, let's say, uh, Terry Brooks and Ray yeah. Feist, yeah, yeah. And, uh, so forth and so on, they've I, I, they haven't been successful from the beginning. No. But I think part of the resentment is they became very successful without doing that long apprenticeship in the pulps that was so valued by an earlier generation of fans. Yeah, um, that, 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 that's a dangerous thing to take as a position, though. Uh, I mean, I, I, I have so much time for world fantasy, and I, I, it's like my favorite convention on, on Earth. I've said it again and again, and I'll continue to say it. But I wonder about these things. Just as, I mean, it's a, there, surely Terry Brooks or, or Steve Donaldson uh, should be guests of honor at, at, at a world fantasy at some point. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, and, and I... I I'm not sure of the nature of the prejudice. I mean, some of it is a matter of taste. I mean, some of yeah, these sure. things I, I I don't find in my taste. But part of it, you know, in, in, in the life of a reviewer is I was talking to somebody this af this afternoon. You've got to get through four or five or six books a month. And if you start reviewing series and then, you know, after a year of being a reviewer, you're doing nothing but reviewing fifth and sixth volumes in series. Oh, sure, sure. We have to look at new stuff. But I think there's also uh, something to be said for um, – the, the writer I know best of this group you've mentioned yes. uh, and who count as a good friend is Steve Donaldson, who is a yep. very serious artist in what he does. He knows what he's doing. He gives a lot of thought to it. Yep. There's a huge amount of emotional weight that goes into his work. Yep. And he, he is not somebody who is um, figuring out the, the next formula for, for, for cashing in. He's, mm -hmm. he's a very serious writer. Yep. Um, 
And I think he absolutely deserves to be to, to, to get this kind of recognition. Well, he's certainly been, I mean, he's been a guest of honor and a Toastmaster at World Fantasy, but he probably he deserves lifetime achievement. Mm. You know, uh, but he, he may be one of these people that's you know uh, still relatively young. But let's face it, the Thomas Covenant books are now considered his achievements. He mm-hmm. can do more other possibly even more interesting things. But that achievement is is there. It's established. It's Actually, decades old now. Yeah. Well, for the third trilogy, um, and it's uh, it, it, it's part of the it's part of the history of fantasy. So you're absolutely right. Sure. Here's somebody who's contributed significantly to the history of fantasy. Sure. Sure. And why not recognize him? Fair enough. I've got a lifetime achievement query for you, Garrett. Hmm. Uh, in world fantasy, Chip Delaney. Um, Chip Delaney doesn't have a world fantasy award, eh? Well, he doesn't have a life achievement world fantasy, no. Doesn't have a life achievement award. Yeah, that surprises me a little bit. Um, and that's that's almost the opposite extreme. There's somebody who is more literary, more theoretical. Again, <laughs> science fiction, but it's almost the opposite end of the spectrum from a very popular yeah. writer uh, and into a very literary writer. But yeah, uh, the the Neverian stories alone are are significant. And there's a interestingly, we mentioned this a couple of podcasts ago. He where, doesn't where have a, he doesn't have a Grand Master Award. He doesn't have a Grand Master Award from from SFWA? No. I'm sorry if I sound a bit stunned by that, but that's because I'm a bit stunned by that. Well, you know, this is one of the things that comes up both uh, with uh, – I mean, I'm not involved with the SFWA, but it comes no, up every no. – I think of World Fantasy Awards is sometimes you overlook somebody because, you, of course, they had one. Yeah. Uh, I remember the year – I think the, the year before I was a judge or maybe the year before that, Jane Yolen was given the award. And uh, I think I think Ellen Clay just wouldn't mind my saying this. I think she was on the committee, and her first reaction when they started, somebody brought up Jane Yolen's name. Everybody on the committee said, "Well, she's got one." We don't need. And you just assume that, and mm. I just assumed that about Chip Delaney. Yeah, no. I mean, I'm not that surprised. I'm a little bit surprised about lifetime achievement at the World Fantasies, just because mo- a lot of his achievement is in the science fiction field. I am a little bit floored about the SFWA. Uh, maybe they'll correct that in coming years. I hope they do. They've got a lot of correcting to do, though. You know, that's the problem with this sort of thing. Uh, sm- small number of in- inductees and lots and lots and lots of people. I mean, and yes, absolutely correctly, a lot of women need to be brought in because they have been overlooked for whatever yeah. reason. Without going into it, lots and lots, and I could go. I could go through a long list, starting with C.J. Cherry for the SFWA. Um, and a long list, as and we've mentioned some of them here, for the world fantasy. But there's just some people you're going, they, they don't, they don't. And then, and of course, the thing that's really wrong and what you should not do, and I think it's because it's offensive and hurtful, is you don't go back to the list and then go, well, how did, you know, Mary Q. Jones get on or Bill, Bill T. Smith when Chip Delaney isn't there kind of thing? And that's the wrong way of looking at it. I think we have to allow that. Well, not even allow. The people who have been honored, I uh, richly deserve it, and I think it's a wonderful thing. But there are these other people who really, really need to get brought in. I, I mean, I think M. John Harrison is probably equally um, yes. uh, deserving of the honor in either field and is at risk of not receiving it, uh, not just because I think he, ta- he takes an outsider position, which I think is his, 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 his approach to things, and I mean, yeah. outsider in the best sense. But he's just senior outside of the uh, orbit of these kind of things. 
and really should be. I mean, I, I would, I'd love to be able to go to Brighton next year, say, uh, and see Mike Harris and pick up a Lifetime Achievement Award. I think that'd be a great thing. I so, think it'd be terrific. Yeah, absolutely. And he's just one example. I mean, if someone said that it was Robin McKinley, I would be delighted. If somebody said that it was um, uh, Mary Stewart or somebody said it was Sherry Tepper or something else, I would be equally delighted. It would be fantastic. So I don't know. It, it, it's great because this is the thing. I mean, uh, Marianne, uh, who is at some point we should have on the podcast, Gary. Yes. Uh, we absolutely should. Uh, Marianne was saying to me she was listening to one of the podcasts. We were talking about the importance of awards and why we keep circling around the subject so often. And I, the, the reason we keep circling around the subject so often is because they come up all the time because the science fiction award seems to, science fiction field seems to love awards more than it loves books. And because they give, they're this opportunity to celebrate our community and particularly lifetime achievement awards are a, a, a phenomenal opportunity to celebrate our community in all of its variations, whether it's as an editor, as, a, as an artist, as a writer, as a, uh, a, a critic, whatever it might be that you might be doing. Um, and I think that, you know, so, so often we risk not doing it properly. I mean, the fact that Robert Holstock will never be a life achievement recipient. I mean, obviously he died unexpectedly. It was very tragic. But still, it's a sad thing. I mean, there's somebody who deserved it. I mean, the guy who wrote Mythico Wood deserves it, you know. Oh, absolutely. Uh, and there are pe people who I think will never get it. And uh, yeah. uh, Surely Tim Powers is going to get it. Oh, yeah, I would think so. Surely, I mean, this is an interesting one because this is the, – we'll get off this topic in a second – the dichotomy of commercial versus critical. What about Megan Lindholm? Good example. Um Long career. Uh, see, Pat McKillop got one, didn't she? She has. She is a recipient, yeah. yes, and and a, and a, a wonderful and a, a worthy recipient. And, and actually, is part of the reason that made me think of McKinley because, if for only obvious alliterative purposes, I think of them together. Um, but I, I would have thought that if you if you look back at Lindholm and her body of work, I think it's worth very worthy of discussion. As is Ellen Kushner, as is Delia Sherman at some point. Um, they're both reaching that sort of stage of their careers happily, uh, and and are you know worthy of being discussed in that light. Obviously, Carol Emshwell is a recipient. Mm -hmm. uh, and I mean, to, I mean to go abroad. I mean, I would be surprised and disappointed if our friend Garth Nixon wasn't in the mix at some point. I would think so. And uh, again, that would be looking outside of England and the UK. I'm looking on the list of uh, Grand Master Awards, and it doesn't look like Gene Wolfe has one either. Gene, uh, uh, the, the SFWA. I think you're correct. I think they have overlooked that as well. And no. of course, I, I, all, I don't really know the criteria. And I, I, I really want to be clear here for a second and take it. Uh, I'm in to step back. What we're talking about with people who are being, who have not yet been re recipients of these awards, what, what we highlight people, it's not to criticize the uh, structure of the award that's being presented. Uh, there's a lot of factors, I'm sure, that go into selecting, say, the SFWA's Grand Master, and they, they do have limitations on the number of times it can be presented and everything else. And I acknowledge mm -hmm. those, though. I, you know, but yeah, I, I think it's. Should we reach a point where Gene Wolfe was never a recipient of the Grand Master Award? I think that would be a very poor state of affairs. And whilst I strongly believe that we need to ensure the diversity of recognition that the field has so sorely lacked. And I think you would join me in, in, in agreeing 
that the field has sorely, sorely lacked uh, a um, broadness of approach to recognizing these sorts of things. If it, I mean, Gene Wolfe, he has to get it. I mean, he's got a world fantasy life achievement, but surely the creator of the Book of the New Sun, if he doesn't deserve the, the, the Grand Mastership, I don't know who does. Well, I think one of the arguments in defense of whoever actually oh, yeah. sort of thing is that nobody it's, – it's, it's, it's one of the things like – it's almost like putting together an anthology. You don't reject people for the award. You no, include you and every year somebody gets included, and every once in a while something stunning happens, uh, and you find that, no, Gene and, and, and Chip aren't there. Yeah. Well, people that are there pretty much deserve to be there. Oh, yeah. And, and the other thing, of course, that, that, that does sit with this is you do have this decision to make, and it's never a straightforward one where you sit there and go, well, OK, let's say hypothetically, and I'm not suggesting they will or should, but let's say next year Sifwa uh, brought, uh, presented the Life Achievement Awards to, to Gene and to Chip, mm-hmm. two old white guys. That means that... But, but Chip's not an old white guy. OK, no, black guy. OK, sorry. He's old. Oh, do you know why I thought of him as a white guy? And I don't think of him as a white guy. It's the hair, Gary. <laughs> That's why. That was the mental state. It's all that white, gray, shock of hair, which is how I perceive him in my mind these days. This yeah, eminence yeah. grease, but yes, absolutely. Yes. But they're old guys, right? They're both old guys. Right. Um, and, the, yeah. When you, when you mentioned the Grand Master Award, Kate Willem comes to mind there as well. Sherry, is it one of the things, you were talking about Sherry Tepper, um, with fantasy, and it may be that her most important works were her early fantasies, as we look at it. I think but she's been writing science days. fiction for, what, 30 years now? Yes, yeah. And Julian May. Hmm. That's a good example as well. And, and I guess this is the thing. It's like, when I look to put someone forward, the problem is that you have to set someone aside when, there is, when, when presenting. Uh, and I, I don't, I'm, I'm glad actually I don't have to make those decisions now because I would sit there and go, look, next year, can we have like about eight grand masters and about 10 life achievement awards just to get it all up to speed a bit? Um, I think that would be good, but for, I think that, and this sounds really bad because it's, you know, or might not, I don't know if it does. There should be a demographic study, Gary. Somebody should find all those 80 and 90 year olds and make sure we've got them in there because, you know. Fred Pol- Fred Pol- well Fred Pohl has the life achievement award, yeah. But, yeah. but Bob Silverberg doesn't have a world fantasy uh, life achievement. You know, uh, Kate yeah. is in her eighties. Ursula has one, but she's in her eighties. Uh, Tepper is in her eighties. You know, the, the, these these people, you know, even Eleanor Arneson is is getting along that way. So you know, really, there's an urgency, to, and and I think I'd love to see something done. To, to broaden recognition and to make sure that these people are recognized and to push the people who are making the decisions to look beyond traditional boundaries as well so that more people from further around in the field are recognized. Well, I think that's the main difference between the, the World Fantasy and the uh, Grand Master Awards from some stuff. The Grand Master Awards are for a lifetime achievement in writing fiction. That's yes. very clear. Yeah. Everybody's done. Uh, you know, the, the world fantasies, I'm delighted that they recognized Ellen Asher. I'm delighted that they recognized Betty Ballantyne, uh, Leo and Diane Dillon. Uh, I think Frank Frazetta has one. So there's a lot of broadening uh, of, of contributions to fantasy. I like that sort of generous, eclectic view of fantasy. It's not only fiction. Everett Blyler, uh, who was a bibliographer, got one. That, that was, the, you know, a, a, in some ways an inspired uh, choice and uh, just uh, parentheses. One of the reasons for that is that all on his own, 
back, I think, in 1948, Everett Weiler put together the checklist yeah. of fantastic literature. That was what we had for a canon for decades. Yes, yeah. He found all these things from the Victorian era on and uh, and, and, and all these pulp things. Yes. And, and people like that are enormously important to the field. Indeed, indeed. On that, two important things occur to me, Gary. Mm -hmm. The first thing is that we're nearly at our hour, believe it or not. And the second is that my lunch just arrived. Oh, even better. Uh, <laughs> because it's like afternoon here. so And my lovely family are going to go out and leave me in, uh, to, to do things. So I'll do some ironing and cleaning and stuff. But um, I'm going to go and have some lunch. Uh, I, I, I probably would look to just capstone the conversation by repeating... This is not intended to be a criticism of any of the award juries, judges, administrators, or anything else who all, I know, uh, put in the, uh, an enormous amount of effort from with the best intentions possible. It's just a practical frustration that, first of all, you can't get everybody in at the same time, and second of all, that sometimes short-sightedness means we don't always include all the people we could or should. And so hopefully, you know, when we come to nominate, I'm sure, I think we can you know, nominate five people when you're a member of the when you're a member of the public for the life achievement. You will think carefully, and everybody will nominate, and hopefully the jury will present to some really interesting people. And come November, when we are in Toronto, we will be able to celebrate these people on the Cooch Street Podcast, maybe live, maybe on the live Cooch Street Podcast. Absolutely, and one of the things I would not even. I would not even say that we're talking about short-sightedness because it's, it's, it's not that. We're making no. suggestions. But, and I, again, recall being a judge, and I, I welcomed suggestions. I welcomed mm. – somebody pointed out to me that Mary Stewart was still alive, and I thought – I just not – I wouldn't have thought of that. Yeah, we agonized. We did agonize over it, particularly since you're aware that you've got so much to choose from and such a small container to fit it into, just one or two nominations so, or recipients in, in, in a year. So hopefully something wonderful will happen. But, Something wonderful will happen, and I'm reasonably confident, almost completely confident, that whoever wins the Life Achievement Award this year is somebody will want to celebrate. Yeah. I mean, I'd be really surprised if it uh, goes to Stephanie Meyer. <laughs> and you know what? If she got it, that would be fine. It would be fine. We would all say that. It would be an entire room full of people. If you can persuade a, a, a jury from the World Fantasy Awards to present the Life Achievement Award to Stephanie Meyer at some time, I'm happy to applaud that because they'll have had a good reason. You are so democratically inclined. It's going, <laughs> going to do you harm sometimes. <laughs> it's going to do you harm. It already has. Anyway, on that cheery note, uh, we've got some uncertainty coming up in the next couple of weeks we should flag, Gary. Because, of course, I'm on the road. Mm -hmm. uh, next Saturday morning, when we would normally record, I'm on a plane headed for Melbourne with uncertain supplies of recording equipment. And so we'll have to just see how we go for those two weeks, because the first week I'm uh, just visiting friends and hanging out, and then there's the Australian National Convention, and I may or may not get a chance to do some recording there. We'll have to see. And as a matter of fact, next weekend I'll be at board meetings for the International Conference in the Fantastic yep. Probably well into the evening here, so yeah. So, so we'll have to see. We'll uh, see what we. Okie dokie. On that cheery note, great talking to you as always, Gary. And talk to you next. Well, maybe not next week, but soon. Talk to you soon. Bye. Bye.